Hey everyone, this is a special episode today. I just finished recording a conversation with Dr. Anna Louise Keating, and it's entitled Nepantla, which comes from the thinking and the writing of the Chicana feminist theorist Gloria Anzaldúa, which we'll get into in just a moment. Uh, this is episode 101 of the podcast Psyche. And in this episode, we do speak with Anna Louise Keating, who's professor of multicultural women's and gender studies at Texas Women's University in Denton, Texas. She's authored multiple books and essays and edited collections primarily focused on transformation studies, U.S. women of color theories, Gloria Anzaldúa, and pedagogy. Some of the episode highlights include her intellectual and spiritual development. We start in her childhood where she grew up in a Plymouth Brethren environment, and we, we talk about some of the problematic elements of that. And then we get into her college years at Wheaton College in Illinois, and then her graduate studies and beyond. And, and we kind of end up exploring some of her recent intellectual and spiritual interests. Uh, we do go deep into Ralph Waldo Emerson's epistemology. Um, obviously, we explore Gloria Anzaldúa and her concept of Nepantla, which is an in-betweenness, uh, navigating a liminal space, which has really helpful implications for thinking about our world, but also implies a lot of suffering and, and a darkness that we get into as well. Uh, we get into her idea of post-oppositional invitations, having an invitational approach to other people. Uh, we talk about different thinkers, including James Hillman and his relationship to Gloria Anzaldúa, Jeffrey Kripal, and many others. Uh, she gets into her practice around yin yoga and her understanding of astrology and how that might even be a resource as we think about social justice today. And we explore so much more. This was a fascinating conversation. I was really drawn to Anna Luisa's spirit and her intelligence and her broad interest. Uh, she felt like a kindred spirit, and I hope to continue to learn from her and access her work in the months and years to come. I really hope that you enjoy this conversation, that you share it with friends and family and anyone who might be interested. And as always, continue the conversation. Thank you so much for being a part of my podcast, which used to be called Therapy for Guys, but I recently changed it to Psyche just to reflect more of my expansive interests so that it's not just so narrowly focused on masculinity, but maybe that's something we could explore in this conversation. Uh, before we begin, would you mind just kind of sharing a little bit about yourself and kind of what you're up to professionally, and then we can jump into the conversation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm... I'm an educator and an author. I guess those are my main two uh, professional things. I am a professor of multicultural women's and gender studies at Texas Women's University. Um, I'm a theorist. I like to write theory. I've worked extensively with Gloria Anzaldúa. That would be one of my main areas. And um, I especially work in, sometimes I think of it as transformation studies. Sometimes I think of it as spiritual activism. Uh, so I'm interested in how to use theory and language to bring about uh, radical progressive change. Yeah, that's um, fascinating. And I also teach yoga. <laughs> oh, you yeah. teach yoga as well. Nice. Is, oh, yeah. is, it, is there a specific type of yoga that you focus on? 
Yes, I love to teach Yin yoga. Okay. Maybe, yeah, maybe you could talk a little bit. I'm not familiar with that type. Maybe you could talk about that. Yeah. So it's actually like the name Yin Yoga didn't emerge until I think the 1990s. So it's relatively recent. It draws extensively on Taoism. So it's bringing in, you know, Yin and Yang. So it's bringing in um, Taoist thought, which is uh, from China, right? So it's a little bit different than like the Hindu tradition of yoga. And although one could certainly, and Instead of, uh, it has breath work and it has many of the same things as other forms of yoga, uh, draws on yoga teachings. The main difference is that we stay in poses, like we they're seated or they're laying down and we stay in them for anywhere from one to eight minutes. Wow. And, and it's, it helps to, uh, regulate the nervous system because we're not exercising muscles, which is what the usual asana yoga practice does. We're relaxing the muscles to get into the connective tissue and, um, you know, we don't think about it because of when we go to school, we see here's the bones, here's the organs, here's the skin. So we think even of our body as composed of multiple different parts, right. but actually there's very little space in the body. It's all stuff and everything is connected by connective tissue. Mm. So yin is a way to, uh, I teach it like a mindfulness of the body. So I, I give people cues and I invite them to keep feeling the sensation and um, just being aware of their bodies and all of those the whole inner dynamic world that we have. So I also see it as a way to uh, access our embodied wisdom and to really strengthen uh, our intuition. Oh, I love that. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I'll probably want to go back and kind of ask you some questions about that. Um, and, and so much of what you highlighted about, you know, your, your theory work and Gloria Anzaldúa, I'm, I'm hoping to kind of bring into our conversation where, where I'd kind of like to start, if you're okay with this, um, I, obviously I did some research and listened to several interviews that you did. It, it, you seem to have this fascinating sort of arc from your earliest childhood to, to where you are now in terms of like your intellectual and spiritual development. And, and I was hoping maybe we can kind of trace that trajectory <laughs> and, and just see where the conversation goes, if, if that works for you. Sure, we can do that. Okay. Yeah. So in, yeah. in, in, in one of the interviews, you, you mentioned that you started out in a very conservative kind of Christian environment. I think you said maybe there was even head coverings. I, I think yep. you mentioned like a maybe a Reformed or Calvinistic kind of environment. And, and I was just wondering if you could speak to that a little bit and maybe how you transitioned out of that and, and maybe even at a theory level, kind of maybe what you didn't like about it or you know how you kind of grew out of that. Yeah, thanks for asking that. Um, so I was born. So my parents' religion is called Plymouth Brethren. Oh yeah, okay. It's a very like the the main claim to fame of Plymouth Brethren is Alistair Crowley, the nineteenth, yes. the twentieth century magician was Plymouth <laughs> Brethren, which is like a weird. Oh wow. Uh, so it's a very conservative form of Protestant Christianity. It seems very Calvinistic because it does have that idea of predeterminism, right? Some people were predetermined to go to heaven and the rest are, you know, damned and should go to hell. So it has a view of human nature as fallen, right? So it takes that interpretation of Genesis. Um, When I was growing up, Plymouth Brethren, like, prided themselves on a very literal interpretation of the Bible. Okay. Um, And literalism has probably dogged me my whole life because you get so trained into it. Um, So there's no ministers mentioned in the Bible. So Plymouth Brethren didn't have ministers. They had deacon. Uh, Women... Women play such a small role in most of the Bible, really, when you think about it. Women didn't talk. Uh, women had to have their heads covered, wear a hat or some kind of veil or something, sure. you know, 
little doily on your head or something. Um, I have always been like really passionate and I've always like leaned into belief. Um, I used to read the Bible every year, like cover to cover, memorize lots of Bible verses. Um, but then it like started coming apart. Number one, when I wanted to be like, I was like, I'll be a minister or I'll be, I'll be one of these people who, you know, it's like, well, no, women don't do that. Right. Mm. Um, I, I even went to a very conservative, pretty conservative uh, college, Wheaton College. Oh, yeah. That's like uh, yeah. the uh, the Harvard of the evangelical institutions. Yeah, I think. <laughs> that's, that's what I was told. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I took philosophy. I love philosophy. There's no women philosophers. Like, it was a while ago. I'm sure they're not saying that now. So, <laughs> so I had, like, those kinds of, like, I had this kind of, like, uh, jarring, you know, kind of difference. Um, plus, like, I would say... I would say my sexuality is like, I'm not heterosexual. So there was also like no representations of like a more queer kind of identity right. either. If this is really what is true, I am revoking, because of course I got saved when I was young. I'm revoking it. Like, it's just not fair to me. Right. right. And, uh, and um, you know, we can fast forward to like seven or eight years ago when I started learning astrology and I can look at my natal chart and I can say, of course, of course I would react exactly like that mm. because, you know, for the rest of the time I had this whole, how my family is so different from me. Like, you know, like how did I get to be who, how am I who I am when they're all like so different? Right. Um, which isn't like they never like rejected me. There's just a lot of stuff we never talked about because like sure. they really, <laughs> how do you argue with your kid? He's like, I give up my salvation. <laughs> like, no, don't want that. That's mean. That's that, that can't be God. Uh, yeah. So, um, so now I understand when I look at my chart, I understand a lot about why I am how I am. But the thing is that I needed something to believe in. So mm. it's just hard to figure out what that was. Um, so I continued after college, I went to graduate school basically to try to find a, you know, what can I like uh, root my life in? Right. Sure. I don't believe, I just, at some level, just that whole kind of hyper individualism. I had my Ayn Rand phase, but it didn't last long. <laughs> um, so then I came across. Emerson. I, I, I was going to ask you that, the, the transcendentalist yeah. and, and Ralph Waldo yeah. Emerson, who I love. And, and you focus on his epistemology, which, which I'm yes. so curious to hear about, if you could speak to that. Absolutely. Um, because his epistemology really helped me to understand. He, he, divide, his, he, has like, he talked about two forms of thinking. One is what he called the understanding. And we would think of that as the logic, analytical, divide things apart, fragment sure. things. That's That's understanding. And that's usually how we operate. That's how uh, society's set up. That's the repressive thinking, the social scripts and all of that. Um, you know, I'm bringing contemporary language into it, but like, that's how I interpreted that. But we also have this other intuitive, almost divine uh, way of knowing. And that would be what he called reason. Mm. And so it, I could understand how to hold simultaneously an acknowledgement of all the social injustice all the flaws, but also this kind of faith or actually almost a roadmap for how things could be different, mm. that holistic relational thought, right? Sure. Um, and so, and so, like, in my training, and actually at that time, philosophy really focused on epistemology. What can we know? They didn't really go into the metaphysics of it, right? But underlying, underlying his theory is very much that whole kind of, a, it's a kind of, a, pluralistic monism yeah. that idea like platinus like the light everything is the light it just like changes as it comes down or sure. whatever you want to call the substance so that gave me a way to uh 
kind of move forward. And and I looked at Emerson, his epistemology. I think my I can't remember the dissertation was something like after beyond the fall or after the fall, mm. because it seems it seemed to me so he was rewriting Christianity from his Unitarian perspective. But more importantly, he had a lot of tragedies in his life, right? Mm. Uh, one of his brothers was um, cognitively impaired. His dad died when they were young. They were really poor. He lost his first wife really early on. And then his first child died at the age of five. So he had all these really huge, and he lost his eyesight for a while. Yeah. So he had all this stuff when he was going to do the ministry, you know, he <laughs> just happened to go blind, uh, <laughs> which is hilarious, right? Um, like his body saying no. <laughs> Anyways. Right. <laughs> so, so, so he could, he could, he could have all these tragedies and not deny them. He, you know, in our terms, we'd say he didn't spiritually bypass them. Right. But he forged a kind of worldview on top of those experiences. Mm. Right. And so that kind of gave me hope that it would be possible to do that. Yeah. Wow. So, so, so in some ways, do you feel like he was almost giving you permission to do that own work on your own or to, to, to kind of carry on your own project? He gave me a, I mean, like looking back, I could say yes, but I I think at the time he gave me uh, a credible, a credible metaphysics and epistemology. Got you. You were forward on. Um, but then right at the end of that, right at the end of my doctoral work, I was in, of all places, a metaphysical bookstore, and I came across a used copy of This Bridge Called My Back, which was actually my introduction to feminism. Okay. Perfect, yeah. In the last Beautiful. section of This Bridge, yeah, there's, you know, there's the piece by um, Anzal Dua, and I was like so captivated with her approach to difference, right? And with her, you know, at the end of that, of the last section of This Bridge Called My Back, there's this call for basically what we could say a politics of spirit, that idea that mm. we can look within ourselves and recover other forms of spirituality and use them and move forward. So that led me into researching her and Paula Gunn Allen and um, Audre Lorde and looking specifically at their use of indigenous and other you know, non-Western myth to kind of create uh, a very sacred, sacred worldviews. So again, I'm, you know, I think I spent most of my career kind of hiding behind like whoever I'm studying. Yeah. And kind of pulling that forward. So uh, I'm not sure if that answered your question. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. There's so many threads. I I, I guess if you don't mind, you know, on on this part of your journey, would would you mind going back and maybe offering a bit of an introduction to Gloria Anzaldúa? I I think there's going to be listeners who know who she is. They've read her work, some that will probably be exposed to her for the first time, you know, in this, in this episode. And so I was hoping you could maybe talk about her a little bit and some of her ideas since you're one of the experts. Absolutely. So Gloria Anzaldúa is especially known for um, two or three books. So the first, the first um, which I mentioned is This Bridge Call My Back, Writings by Radical Women of Color. That was published in 1981. Anzaldúa is um, a Chicana, uh, she identified at the time as a Chicana lesbian feminist. And she and Sheree Moraga, who was her co-editor, were really tired of being in so many feminist spaces that were entirely white, mm. entirely middle class, and way too heterosexual. And they were tired of uh, people making the assumption that feminists are only white, right? So one of the things, one of the important things this book does is it it draw it brings together uh, women of color feminists, African American, uh, Cuban. Uh, Native American, um, Asian American. So it brings together a lot of different women of color 
who all in various ways identify as feminist. And they're kind of talking back. First, they're talking back saying, we're feminists too. And you, you know, your feminism is being too narrow. But then they start doing their own theorizing and talking about internalized racism or some mm. of those really complex things. So, and they do it in uh, regular prose essays, but in letters and in um, poems. So they do it in all these genres. So that book is super important. Uh, it's really unfortunate that it's still so timely. It's mm. still, you know, you can teach it in a college classroom and students forget that that's 1981. Oh, it's, wow. it's way too, yeah, it's way too relevant still when you think about all the division. Um, they also really brought forward the term women of color to describe women of color. Um, and Anzaldua told me that at that time, the the discussion was so binary, black, white, black, white, black, mm. white, that they really wanted to kind of also open that up. Um, so that gave her a little bit of um, fame uh, and attention. And she also saw herself very much as a poet. So she wrote, she started with a book of poetry called Borderlands. And mm. eventually that was turned into, yeah, I had started, isn't that like interesting? It's very it interesting. It turned into this book that's half prose and half poetry it's it's there's a mix of poetry in the prose part called borderlands la frontera the new mestiza this was published in 1987 um she was focusing especially she's from south texas so she was focusing on that border between texas and mexico um, but she was also focusing on what it means to live in between multiple worlds and not really fit anywhere whether mm. it's because of your language or your height or your skin color or your ethnic background or your race. So all these different things. And she theorized drawing from her experience to create uh, what's called numestisa consciousness, which is a way of thinking not only enacted by some Chicanas or Mexican-Americans, but a way of thinking that really potentially anyone who is caught among multiple worlds and doesn't want to just pick one place, but instead tries to thoughtfully move among them, create something new, live with the contradictions. So it's, it's an epistemology. Yeah. Um, is, is, is that related to, to the concept Nepantla? Yes. Okay. So Anzal Dua was talking about borderlands, and she says this in the preface, both in terms of the literal geographic border, but also in this psychic identity, you know, psychological, complex way of that, that kind of like liminal space. And what she found is that some people, especially some scholars, wanted to pin it down and say it only means the geographic area, mm. and she's only talking about Chicanas. And that was not what Anzaldúa intended. So she's like, instead of arguing about that, she just kind of moved on to use the word Napantla. Napantla is a Nahuatl term, so it's, it's indigenous, and it means, uh, you see it in a lot of texts, it kind of means in between. So she used it to theorize more deeply that in-betweenness and really build in the idea, like, it's painful. Sometimes mm. we can romanticize that, right? Sure. Like, yay, thresholds, liminality. Um, but it also is really painful. It's pa so, so that kind of uh, place of pain, place of contradiction and stuff like that. And that's a really important theory of hers as well. Yeah. yeah. No, and I, I can totally see. I've I've done it in the past. I've uh, romanticized that concept. But you know, as a psychotherapist, I work with a lot of individuals who I would say are in a state of in between, in a in a liminal space, and it is quite painful. There's a lot of suffering, and one of the words they bring up quite a bit is that it's disorienting because they don't really know what's up or down, left, right. You know, it's it's kind of this space. Of, it's like a no man's land. 
Yeah. And, and, and it can be very tough to navigate. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think this is where Anzal Dua's spirituality comes in. Okay. Right. I think that, um, and you know, like, so I wrote about her and then I met her and became friends and we wrote stuff together. Right. Wow. So I also have this, uh, I also have this kind of like behind the scenes knowledge of her. Right. Sure. Um, because of working with her for over 10 years and because of, um, you know, I edited her final book, Light in the Dark. Right. Mm. So I, you know, so I've seen all the behind the scenes stuff. And so she definitely, definitely, definitely uh, had a lot of depression. Mm. Right. And the people who know Borderlands, the Quatlique state, that's de- one of the meanings of it is it's the it's depression. But I think even as she battled that and even as she had that disorienting not fitting in she has that she has a poem called um uh i'm gonna get the name wrong she has a poem where she talks about always being on the other side gotcha el otro lado always on the other side always on the other side wherever you are it's always not that right Mm. that's that that's that you know it's it's almost like a free fall sure right so for her i think what she worked to do was to try to create some stability inside okay it wasn't just inside. Like she was really, uh, she was very much into like meditation and visualization. Okay. But almost this inside that would work with images of rooting down. She called, you know, the tree of life, arbol de la vida. Uh, but really growing these like deep roots deep into the earth to kind of mm. create for herself some kind of sense of stability, even as everything else is just like <laughs> in this flux. Okay. Right? Got you. Yeah. 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 So, okay. Well, one of the things that's coming up for me, and, and I and I know eventually I wanted to get at uh, what what you call like a post oppositional politics of change, but yes. f- focusing on uh, Anzaldúa for just a second and, and something you were saying, I feel like today there's a lot of like identity politics. There's a lot of you know w- wanting to be on the right side, whichever side that is, and and what you just said about her and her experience. It's always like she was on the other side. Do, do you think she has something to say? To the way that we in the modern world think about identity and how we get so caught up in that game and 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 the us versus them. Yes, uh, yes. In fact, I was looking at a talk she gave in two thousand and three at Oregon State. So one of her very last talks because okay. she died in two thousand and four, and she said, "These identity labels are killing us." Wow. Yeah. She was very aware of all of that right you know she got criticized for various things she got criticized for being not lesbian enough and actually Mm. if we look at if we like really step back and i think she would have acknowledged this too like her queerness was much more like a like a a bisexuality at the least okay very very open right like she didn't fit in those categories so she could really see it but she also and and this is i love her early essay la prieta which means the dark one Yeah. in this bridge called my back where she's talking about creating uh, El Mundo Zurdo, the left-handed world, a world anybody can be there. It doesn't matter why you've been marked as different. It offers a space to connect through that sense of difference without imposing sameness. And mm. I think the problem so often with, and, and I think she would say this too, the problem so often right now with identity is we're doing it in this exclusionary way. And she says this in uh, mm. this bridge we call home. We define who we are by who we're not. That's how identity works, right? right. And she talks about another way to define who we are by what we include. 
Mm. Like how different is that? I, I right? like that. Yeah. And there's a way to do that that doesn't, the problem in the past has been when people try to do that, they just revert to sameness. But sure. we're all alike. I understand you completely. We're the same. We're human. And that erases all of the nuanced specificity. So there has to be a way to hold all that specificity and still create this container, you know, for, for everybody or for larger groups, right? So we could think of it as commonalities. Mm. I think Anzal Dua might think about it or her work shows it as a relational difference, right? Okay. Instead of the hierarchical difference, de- deviation from a norm. Like that's that's what doesn't work, right? And, and yeah, too often I think even progressive people do that. Jackie Alexander talks about it as mono thinking. Oh, we all have yeah. to think the same. We all have to have this strategy. Like, why can't we sit with the differences? Why, do, you know, and I, it's like, yeah. <laughs> well, no, gosh, that's so good. You know, and, and, and thinking about these things so much over, over the years, do, do you have thoughts on, on, on why we get so entrenched in that type of thinking and, and why it is so difficult to embrace, you know, kind of this perspective that she's writing about? I think... Uh, there's our quest for certainty. Mm. There's the assumption that they're. It, honestly, it's it's what it's 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 Western epistemologies. Okay. The desire for certainty, the assumption one person one right answer, everything else wrong. Yeah. The battle to be right. Uh, still, this kind of hyper individualism. So we see ourselves as so self enclosed from others. Um. The combativeness, you know, we have we've taking in so much that whole survival of the fittest. Oh, um, yeah. And, and then there's the part that's the whole, you know, Audre Lorde talks about uh, stop fighting for the piece of the pie. The whole pie's poisoned, right? Mm. But so many, there's so many things, whether it's in the economy or in other spaces where people are pitted against each other. There's one, one prize, you know? So I, I think all of those things make it really, I think all of those things play into it. Okay. Got you. Oh, that's, and, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I I couldn't agree more. Now, in terms of Gloria Anzaldúa, you know, did did she have any reflections on Christianity? You know, and, and I'm just curious if if she played a role in, you know, your own relationship to that tradition, having come from that. Does she reflect on that at all? She, if you, she she gave a lot of interviews. So I edited a book of her interviews, interviews and entrevistas, and in some of the early interviews. Uh, she's incredibly anti-Christianity. Okay. She's like, in fact, one of the one of the things I love about Anzal Dua is generally she's never, oh, that's completely terrible. Like she's never <laughs> like rejecting everything, right? She always sorts through it and sees from other sides. But some of her early interviews from like the late 70s and early 80s, she's just like, that's bullshit. I mean, she doesn't say bullshit, but you know, that, you know, she's very, she's very dismissive of it. Um but she herself was raised under a kind of folk Catholicism, mm. right? So Guadalupe is important to her. Sure. So some syncretism. You know, in a mythic way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And her, you know, her mom gave her a milagro that, you know, a little like saint, you know, so she, she, she had that whole thing going as well. Um, I think I had sorted through like my, like, like, I think when I met her, I was like, post- I'm not a Christian, like, you know, I'm gotcha. not a Christian. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. You, so, you know, one of the things that comes up for me, one of the intellectual giants for me and in, in, in my work is someone named James Hillman. He was a student of Carl Jung. And then I, th- I think somebody who else is huge for me that I think you've talked about being very important to you is Jeffrey Kripal. 
um, they, they, they both kind of are, are weary of like monotheism and, and kind of a monotheistic type of thinking. And, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Not, not that I want to sit here and just completely shit on Christianity or, or monotheism because I don't want to scapegoat or create like this oppositional thing, but I do see it being quite problematic. And I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that, given that that was kind of your upbringing as well in some ways. Oh, yeah. I have lots of thoughts on that. Okay, um, please, please side go. Note, <laughs> yeah, si- side note, Anzal Dua loved James Hillman. Really? Oh my gosh, yeah. She kept telling me to read uh, Revisioning. Oh, uh, Revisioning Psychology, which was like his magnum opus in some ways, yeah. And the Underworld book. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow, okay. Which I'm finally has, reading. Really has sad, has like, anyone in, ever kind of written about their There is one article. Oh, yeah, wow, it's, okay. it's so, it's really, it's, yeah, she. I think she got a real sense of affirmation from him. Oh, wow. You know, really, like in terms of like in the imaginal, I think that really spoke to her as okay. well. Okay, yeah. okay. Oh, that's yeah. so cool. Thank you for pointing that out. Now, now I want to like do a rabbit hole trail on figuring that out. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so have you, there's a, there's a German theologian called Jan Osman, and he has a whole book where he's critiquing monotheism. And okay, I'm going to have he, to check that out. Thank you. No, I haven't yeah. heard of that. Yeah, because he really articulated like my felt sense of the problem with it. Okay. I really think, uh, I, I'm not saying like, oh, polytheism is great, but I really do think if you get one God, if that is a very singular God, the way it's so often presented, especially in Protestant Christianity, yes. I do think it plays a real role in people assuming there's one way to be right, there's one way to be, there's one way to be human, there's, you know, and then you have, and then if this God is hierarchical, well, then here we go. We, our society should be like that. Yes. And then you bring in these arbitrary things. I mean, even the God of the Old Testament, like, come, you know, like uh, Merlin Stone's book, When God Was a Woman, was really influential to me. Have you heard of that book? No, I haven't. Maybe, maybe you could talk it's really about great. it. Yeah. Oh, and in fact, Anzal do a new Merlin Stone, right? And that book was important to her too. Merlin Stone, she looks at um, archaeological sites that are mentioned in the Old Testament. Okay. And she talks about over and over and over again, these earlier cultures were much more, uh, not her term, gynocentric. Okay. They were much, they had like, you know, the serpent was a female God. The tree represented a female God. Sure. Uh, apple female. So all of these really important religious symbols for other cultures get taken over, mm. turned into evil, right? Um, yeah, so that was really that like that was really helpful when i read that i was like no wonder that old testament god is so awful mm. uh, you know <laughs> yeah no and so yeah. i i i'm glad you reflected on the monotheism too cuz i i couldn't agree more i i sometimes don't know what the alternative is but but i am drawn to kind of a polytheistic understanding even though i don't even know what i actually think about polytheism but it just seems like a more of a con metaphor to to think about difference and multiplicity yeah i i think um what I've landed at for myself is sure. just thinking of the whole world as in soul, like I everything like having like spirit, a anima mundi. Every, yes, everything. Right. And really that's, there's a whole Western tradition for that as well. I mean, sometimes it can be easy to be like, well, this is what indigenous people think. And it really makes a lot of sense. And we all were indigenous at some point. Sure. But also we can even look at even just going back to the Renaissance, like even they had much more in views of things. So Western, you know, Western tradition had it too. Sure. Um, but that kind of participatory relational, everything is a certain kind of alive. Sure. Like that to me makes a lot of sense. And maybe there's multiple gods. 
you know, along right. with a lot of that intellectual humility for humans. I think yes. like, I don't know. <laughs> yes. So, okay. So one of my personal struggles is, and, it, and my wife makes funny because depending on the day I, I wake up and I say that I'm kind of a spiritual person, open to everything. Other days I wake up and I'm very skeptical and maybe more atheistic. How, how have you kind of balanced kind of that, that critical, you know, seeing through some of the bullshit in spirituality and religion, but then also seeing some of the value and being open to it and, and realizing that it can be this tremendous force? Yeah, I, I'm like no good with any kind of organized religion. Okay, I'm, honestly, I'm not either. Probably, yeah, or even probably like I, there's uh, probably like organized spirituality I would be no good at too. Yeah, um, they, they would kick me out pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, you know, tell me something, you know, just tell me what to do and I'll be like, I'm gone. I don't know. <laughs> exactly, like, uh, me too. <laughs> it's not, I'm not proud of that. Um, I think like at a deep, like, it sounds really weird to say it, but like at some level, I couldn't prove it. I just know. I know mm. everything's odd. I know everything is imbued with spirit. I know humans aren't the only ones who are sentient. I know these things. I don't, I can't prove it. And I don't even know what proof would look like. Sure, but yeah. Sure. And I understand. And see, that's where we could go all the way back to Emerson. Yeah. I was hoping you would make that connection. So, yeah. And that's what's so useful. Like, because we can perceive everything is dead. Like that's a whole nother way of looking at it. Sure. Right. But we have this like more intuitive sense. And so I, I would have to say I personally am interested in more and more and more and more cultivating that relational uh, way of living and epistemology and ethics because I think uh, I think it can lead us into more insight for how to live differently. Right. Got you. I mean, I, I think it to me it seems completely possible there's spirits. And it seems completely possible we have ancestral gods or ancestral spirits. I mean, you know, just because we can't prove it in some kind of empirical way doesn't mean that it doesn't have value. Gotcha. Yeah. Do, do, you, do you think what you just said uh, connects with the way kind of Jeffrey Kripal approaches things? Is that one of the things you resonate with or, or, or would you see I it like differently? I like Jeff a lot. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't, uh, you know, I, you know, he has, have you, you know, that um, archives of the impossible conference? Yes. I, I've, yeah, I, and, I, and, I, and I live in Houston. I, I haven't had a chance to oh. go to it, but but it's on my list yeah. of things to check out for sure. Yeah, I was there. Um, I was there this past weekend. I gave the closing plenary. Oh, nice. Okay. On Anzaldua, he read Anzaldua, and he really likes her. Oh, wow. Okay, man, yeah. you're, you're helping Lef- me make he, some great connections here. Thank you. <laughs> he ta- he talks about La Facultad in his most recent book, Superhumanity. That's a good one. But I. I've not read enough of him. I lo- like authors of the impossible was an per- a important book to me personally, because it showed me I could be an academic and really start taking more risks. Mm. And that was important. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cause I, cause I had this dream where I could walk through walls and it was so real. I know it's possible. And like after reading Jeff's book, I was like, I can write about this now. So yeah. Wonderful. Um, yeah. Anyway. So I don't know enough about what his, how he, where he puts spirit or where he is within animism. I know his, his uh, perspective on the paranormal as like reality is so much huger than we realize. Like yes. I get behind that completely. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and again, I don't know if I'm going to put it exactly how he would, but he seems to walk that fine line of a kind of a radical openness to kind of that, that, that expansiveness of the world, the, 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 the deep mystery, but then also kind of this, 
critical eye of, of I don't know that I, I believe necessarily in the way that you think I should believe. Yeah. So, so whether that's UFOs or, you know, some kind of paranormal experience, he's, he's kind of open to reality, but, but also kind of skeptical. And, and I, I tend to resonate with that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I'm a, yeah, I can't tell if he's like really more skeptical or if he's wearing a mask that's more skeptical. Mm. I don't know. I mean, I don't have enough to base that on. I'm just like wondering. Sure. I would say I, I'm more like, I'm not skeptical anymore. I mean, I don't know what is real, right. but I know reality is bigger. I do think there are spiritual forces or spirits or whatever. I mean, I, I think I really do think that like at this point, it's very useful. I'm very pragmatic. Okay. It's very useful. It's very useful to hold those beliefs. Sure. Right? sure. It, enriches, it enriches my scholarship. I'm really going to lean into that in this next book, see where it takes me. Okay. Well, wow. Could you, could you speak to that in terms of the next book? What are you working on? Uh, it's, it's a book, um, it's under contract with Illinois press. Okay. Um, the working title is woman is spiritual activism. So it's going to be spiritual activism, but, um, so I, you know, I'm very rational also. Right. So I will do like the justifications and all of that. Sure. Uh, but then I'm like going to, I'm not sure yet where I'm going to take it. I mean, I think I want to talk about astrology. I mm. think I want to talk about, maybe I want to talk about Ian yoga. Maybe I want to talk about what are the practices we can use to live in a different kind of alignment with mm. our soul and how can that play a part in social justice work? Cause for me, it always has to go there. Okay. How can this help us to create a more equitable world? Oh, I like that. So, so Anna Louise, can, can, can you kind of maybe explore this one for me? Just that I think we are probably on the same page of struggling with like institutional forms of religion and spirituality, but I think we also have maybe like a relational approach to reality and, and, and community is probably important. How do you navigate some of those tensions of, of not being drawn to kind of the institutional forms of things, all the dangers that can come with that, but then also the value of relating to other humans. Do, do you see that as kind of a tension? How do you navigate that? Yeah. When you say institutional things, what do you mean? Uh, you know, like churches, uh, g- groups that are going to have certain norms and, and, you know, this is what it means to be a yeah. part of this. You know, that if you, if you break it, you know, you're kind of out or you're ideologically opposed to us now. Yes. Okay. Got it. Well, I mean, you know, as an educator teaching at a public university in Texas, I never, yeah, I think I can really safely say I never impose my beliefs on anybody. And I'm really, really aware of the possibility of being accused of that at any Mm. level. So I'm especially careful to create what I call invitational. Okay. No, I set up dialogues among texts. I set up different ways of looking at things. I encourage students to trust themselves to kind of sort through all of the scripts they're getting to try to listen to their inner wisdom. I do believe we have this inner voice of wisdom. Um, so that's how I engage. I engage in an invitational way. I engage in a way it's really post-oppositional. I engage in a way that, uh, tries to really listen to what's being said, doesn't impose my interpretation on it and tries to create conversations. My family is still really conservative and, you know, sometimes we'll like, talk about these things, some of us, but I never do it thinking I'm going to change anybody's view. Like I talk about it with my dad because it keeps his mind active and he likes to talk about it. You know, his views might make me really sad, but they're his Mm. views. Right. So I don't, I don't feel the need to convert or to change. 
Okay. I also do think sometimes, especially with students, just offering them. So in my undergraduate course, we read Thich Nhat Hanh. Oh, yeah. He's great. And we do uh, wellness practices. So they are practicing mindfulness. Nice. And it really helps them regulate their nervous systems. Mm. The ones who are actually doing it and not just, you know, faking it. Like, it really helps them. So I, I know that there's some really useful personal benefit they will get out of things if they do it. And I can say, this will be useful to you. And they'll do it or not as they want. And, you know, I don't try to catch them not doing it. Gotcha. So that's, yeah. that's my attitude. Um, because I am an academic and for whatever reason, I feel the need to write about these topics in academic spaces. Mm. I'm super aware of possible arguments against what I might say. Okay. And I try to really anticipate them, not by saying, and here's why I'm right. But things sure. like some people might argue X and that could be, but here's what I think, mm. right? So, uh, but I, I try really hard not to take on people uh, head on. Like I, I read the first review of my most recent book and that was kind of a criticism that I didn't more overtly address okay. certain critiques, but that's not, I'm actually a very combative person, but okay. I'm working a lot not to be that. Gotcha. It's like working against that. No, I get that a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really struck and drawn to this idea of being invitational I, I just wonder if there's anything else you could say about that uh, as, as you think about where we are, you know, in our country today, what, what would being more invitational look like, do you think, across different sides? Yeah, um, I think it would I think I think it would start with just having spaces to actually really, really listen to what mm. each side is saying. Like, I cannot wrap my head around the anti anti-trans movement. I don't understand it. I, I just don't I, understand it. I, I don't either. It's, it's, it just, to me, it seems so hateful. Yeah. I think so, it is. Jeez. I think at the level of the politicians, you know, there's this certain kind of usefulness happening. Right. So I, I think that could be, I think some of those conversations could be super painful, mm-hmm. but to, understand i'm gonna guess like because i really try to i think you know Thich Nhat han talks has that buddhist belief of a basic goodness in everybody yeah i really want to believe there's a basic goodness in most if i want to believe there's a basic goodness in everybody so i would like to think there could be some conversations that could listen from everybody's place of basic goodness and see what emerged okay i like because i don't understand it i don't understand I don't understand Roe v. Wade being overturned. I don't yeah. understand some people being so sure they're right that they can intrude so much on other people's physical autonomy, mm. whether it's about reproduction or whether it's about uh, gender. And sure. I understand we have a long history of that because we can go back to slavery. We can go back to the decimation of indigenous peoples. We're sure. built on that kind of violence. But the 21st century, how are we, how are we here? You know? Yeah. It's a question I ask myself every day. I also say, on the one hand, I really do. I'm not, I'm from Puerto Rico. So I came to the United States when I was two, but we moved to Houston. I, I love Texas and I also kind of hate it at the same time. I'm, I'm torn <laughs> between this. It's a great state, but it's also pretty awful in terms of the politics. Yes. I'm from Chicago. Okay. <laughs> uh, I feel about the same way. Mm. So invitational, post oppositional. I guess, is there, is, you know, I sometimes think 
are, are there any things in our world to be hopeful of? Are there, are there any things that are happening that, that are really inspiring? And I'm, I'm always curious to check in on my guests and different scholars. When, when you look out there and, and you do your research, I think it's so easy nowadays to be negative. You know, even Kripal talks about how in fashion it is to be, you know, uh, kind of pessimistic and, and, and ironic about everything. Is there anything that you're kind of hopeful for? Do, do you see any good? I mean, you said you believe in the goodness of humanity. Where, where do you see yeah. that these days? Well, I mean, I, so I think, for example, on a social media site like in, Instagram, I, I like the more, uh, well, how do I want to say it? I mean, there's a number of women of color and others who have like, like a politics of spirit, mm. right? And it's on Instagram. Like that's being more, normalized um astrology like astrology not sun sign astrology but astrology that goes back to ancient texts that have recently been translated and and thinks thoughtfully about astrology as part of this as above so below as within so without that kind of thing um astrology as a field has gotten much more diverse i would love to see them do more with the social justice but some do okay. like it becomes a fascinating place for social justice would you would you um, mind speaking to that cuz there, there's a lot of listeners yeah. that really are into like archetypal astrology and i have a lot of people in my life that are always talking to me about it i just don't know much about it um i've read richard tarnas and a couple other things i have a, a a beautiful wonderful niece who's really into it she's always telling me about it but i'd love to hear kind of what it means to you and yeah how it's getting linked with social justice that's fascinating yeah um so so I see astrology as, uh, you know, I, I see the whole cosmos as intricately interrelated. So astrology is part of that, the planetary movement, the fixed stars, the asteroids, it's all part of this huge cosmic dance. Mm. So we can turn our attention to the dance and find out energetically some things that are going on, right? Like, like, certain planetary combinations like it's going to be really high anxiety Mm. so like what i do part of what i do with that is i use that information when i design my yin classes okay so i'll have a sequence that speaks to a lot of anxiety or there's like if mars might be like super active and mars is connected with the sense of selfhood and pushing forward and war and fierceness and you know it's really energizing but it also can be really combative so then i might do pick a sequence that's super calming assuming that some people who come in that would be useful so that's like a really small way um you have uh, astrologers like jessica laniadu who has a podcast and she correlates these kinds of things but she's also like these constellations going on now, like a year ago, she was like, this is not good for trans people. We mm. have things coming, not good for trans. Like she, you know, these ways, you sure. know, so then she's trying to encourage her listeners who are probably mainly in their 20s, right? Who have like a really different kind of anxiety than mm. students 20 years ago. Like oh, I've yeah. been struck by the difference. You know, so she gives them these tools and ways of thinking. And then you have Chani Nicholas, who's doing that from a, who and both, and Chani especially, like she has that ancient Hellenistic, perspective she's super popular she has an app and stuff that are like super popular Mm. and she is very inclusive she's you have the underlying like real social justice critiques uh she herself is you know uh completely out lesbian uh talks a lot about her wife so really normalizing things sure um but also very positive it's that idea that everyone part of it is it's what a birth a birth chart speaks to 
Welcome to the world. You belong here. Here's some things you can do. Here's some things about what you're like, what you might want to do. Not determining, but just like you might lean into this. You might think about that. So it's this way of like, I see it and astrology is like ways to help us belong. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, that's 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 really good. So, okay, and then Luis, I, I think I've come to the end of maybe some of the questions I had. It's been wonderful to really connect with you and and to make some connections, even with uh, Anzal Dua and James Hillman. I'm really going to kind of do a deep dive and try to figure that out some more. Is there anything else about you or your scholarship that you'd want to just kind of throw out there? Uh, is there a place people can go online to find you uh, if they're wanting to connect with you? Yeah, very soon. Uh, very soon I'm going to have a website. <laughs> nice. Oh, I can't wait to yeah, check that I, out. Yeah, I will send you that. I will send you that URL. Okay, thank uh, you. Yeah, it's getting, I, I just, I don't remember it. I think it's like my name. <laughs> okay. I, I think it's just my whole name, but sure. I don't remember it. Um, yeah, um, I teach yoga three times a week. All my classes are both in person and virtual. If okay. anybody ever wants to try a class, they can do that. Um, my most recent book, The Anzal Duo Theory Handbook. It's, yeah, it's on it's on Anzal Dua, but it also is a lot of like kind of my philosophy. Your, your, your philosophy coming out as well. Okay. Okay, great. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, so one of the things that I do just to kind of end the conversation is to have the guest that's with me kind of just end with the, the line of the podcast, which is just saying, continue the conversation as, as a way to kind of carry on the spirit of dialogue and coming together and talking about ideas. So would you mind just saying that continue the conversation? I'm happy to. Thank you. Continue the conversation. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Great conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope that you were inspired and challenged by the conversation. I'd love to hear from you and I would love to connect. The best way to reach me is to go to my website. You can go to Q-U-I-Q-U-E. A-U-T-R-E-Y, that's kikeatri.com, and there you'll find all my contact information. Or if you just Google my name, Kike Autry, you'll find my Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram accounts, and you can reach out to me through those means. You can also check out the website of the practice that I work at, Katie Counseling for Men. That's katiecounselingformen.com, where I serve as the lead men's counselor, and you can reach out to me through that. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, or if you have any ideas on individuals that I could interview, please let me know. I'm always grateful to hear from my listeners. Uh, This wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you so much, and as always, continue the conversation. (music) 